0: The book of 1 Corinthians has a lot of cultural background that we have, from the beginning, spent some time talking about. And as we went into chapter 8, if you'll if you're recall from a few weeks ago, there's this social feast that takes place in the ancient Greco-Roman world, and uh, this is what it looks like you go to an idol's temple and there's a sacrifice that's made part of the meat is used for cultic purposes for the worship purposes part of the meat is then eaten as as a feast and 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 all kinds of people in society take part in these feasts you go to these feasts to uh, for for birthdays sometimes celebrate the birth of a child or or um If you're part of a guild or a club, a social club, you go to these feasts to to take part. And so when you go to these feasts and you eat this food in the presence of the God, whose temple it is, like let's say Isis, you eat this feast, this meat that's been sacrificed to an idol in honor of Isis, who's supposed to be there. It's an honor to this
1: God. Who is no God. There is no such Isis.
0: And that's a good piece of knowledge to have. That's that's good theology. That's a good monotheistic world view. Isis does not exist. And the Corinthians, some of them knew that. And Paul says, this knowledge is puffing you up. Because you're using that knowledge to continue going to these feasts. Because you say, if food is sacrificed to an idol of a God who doesn't exist, then what does it matter? It doesn't matter if I eat food sacrificed to ISIS. There is no ISIS. So, by their knowledge, they are continuing to participate in something that's of a highly questionable nature. And Paul has probably told the Corinthians, not to do this and the corinthians at this point have probably responded in order to defend their right to do this so that they can continue taking part in this social exercise because it's very important to lubricate your social relationships by taking part in these feasts so the corinthians are defending their right saying there's no god but one we can eat at these feasts and now Paul is responding to them again and saying okay look there's some problems with your perspective there are two problems that he's going to point out with what the Corinthians are doing and the first problem is that this is not loving to other believers in the church and the reason it's not loving to other believers is because some of those believers used to go to Isis's temple and worship and now they see you going to the temple eating and they are encouraged now to eat but the problem is when they eat they're actually experiencing worship to Isis. You might not be experiencing worship because you know that there's one god and they know there's one god but they're not experiencing it that way because they used to spend time here in worship. So it's not loving to continue to exercise this right this freedom it's becoming a stumbling block now the second problem is unknown to the corinthians it's actually fellowship with demons and and that's the more fundamental issue paul will get to that in chapter 10 but for now he says let's just talk about it as though you really did have the right and i'll show you why it's not loving so that's what's going on, the, this perceived freedom is tempting other believers who are weak, is the word, that's the word that Paul uses, um, to stumble. So here's what I want to do today, I want to talk a little bit about the weak, and then I want to talk about these, I don't know, freedom fighters. These people who are demanding their rights, and then I want to use all of that as kind of a lead in to just talk about let 's talk about the issue of Christian freedoms and issues of the conscience and personal convictions and 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 how do you how do you exercise your freedoms and when do you go too far and what does it look like in the church body and so i I, I want to go there, but let me start with talking about the weak and the nature of the weakness that these corinthians are experiencing some of these corinthians are not experiencing existentially if i can use that word their experience doesn't match with what they know notionally they've got information in their brains there's only one god but they go to the temple of isis and eat and they're experiencing worship to another god their, their 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 existential experience doesn't match with their notional knowledge. Does that make sense? It's like if you were to go. I always thought I've never done this. I always thought it'd be cool to go uh, drive on the autobahn. The recommended speed for mo- for uh, over half of the autobahn, from what I am reading on Wikipedia, is 130 kilometers an hour. It's about 81 miles an hour. Okay, I can imagine that very well. Uh, Colorado speed limit is seventy-five. Eighty one is uh I may have got gotten there before. Um, <clears throat> but it's just a recommendation. So you go over to the Autobahn and you hit 81
1: and you say to yourself, Hey, how about 85? Or ninety? Or a hundred? And you're cruising at a hundred
0: and and you know it's okay, but I don't know, you pass a police officer and, and you kind of hit the brake. Because like, it feels like there's something wrong. It feels like you're, you, you know it's okay, but experientially it feels like you're breaking the law. You're cruising at 150 on the Autobahn and in your conscience you might be going, I know this is okay, but it doesn't feel right because, you, because of your old paradigm. Something kind of like that maybe is going on for these Christians. It's okay. We know that food sacrifice to an idol doesn't mean anything for the food, but I keep experiencing it like it's worship because that's my old paradigm. So I've always thought of it. So maybe it's something like that. They know there's one God in their heads. They have to know this, otherwise they wouldn't be Christians. Paul. It's not like Paul was was uh, you know skirted around that issue. In fact, that's what we talked about last week, how how, uh, happily Paul affirms their monotheistic convictions in verses 4 through 6. So they haven't been able to internalize that truth. That's basically what's going on. And and because of that, there's a sense in which Paul says, verse 7, not all possess this knowledge. Knowledge in the deepest sense. Not everybody has that knowledge, even though they know it up here. So, they're weak in the sense that they can't eat this food without having the internal experience of worshiping a false God. That's how the weakness works. Now, how about these freedom fighters? Uh, you know, I've got to have my rights, my right to eat meat in an idol's temple because there is no God but one. What's going on with them? Well, they're encouraging the weak to eat and they're doing it in in probably two ways they're at least doing it because the weak are seeing the freedom fighters going into the temples so they're seeing it and it's it's enticing them this this is what paul says in verse 10 if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple will he not be encouraged or built up Will he not be encouraged um, if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So so they're being encouraged in that they're seeing it take place, but there's another factor at play, namely this this bold, arrogant, puffed up, in your face, blatant, I've got rights mentality. I mean, we're in the crossfires right here of Paul and this church that's like just desperately trying to hang on to this right to continue participating in these feasts they won't stop the apostle says stop they say no and here are reasons why they start rationalizing and justifying they, we're we're just we're here in the crossfires right here the corinthians seem to have a campaign to encourage the weak to to build up the weak to participate in things that they're free to do a crusade to use knowledge as an instrument for strengthening the weak to do something that they just shouldn't do. It's, a, it's the equivalent of like Christian peer pressure to exercise your Christian freedom.
1: And the irony is that the pressure
0: that's there to build them up is actually destroying them. Verse 11, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Okay, so what we have here is the use of freedom to entice and perhaps even some pressure. Perhaps even some pressure that others should do something that would be sin for them. That's one of the things that we can see here about these freedom fighters. The other thing I want to point out, just again, is, is that their freedom that they have is just a perceived freedom. They're perceiving it as a freedom. They know there's one God. They know food doesn't matter. And if that's all there was to it, it probably would be just a case of people having having differing convictions. You know, some people eat meat, some people eat vegetables, some people drink wine, some people don't drink wine. Just a matter of personal convictions here. And right now, Paul is treating the situation as though their freedom was a genuine freedom. For the sake of argument, so he can help them see that your perspective is, is selfish. It's not loving. In reality, it turns out that what they think is a freedom to eat at the idol's temple is sharing a meal with demons. In chapter 10, we'll get to that probably relatively soon. Okay. But Paul, right now, Paul's treating it as though it were a freedom. It's as though it were a genuine freedom issue so that he can get them to see their whole mentality is messed up. So let's just say that you are free to eat. The way that you're using that freedom, which isn't really a freedom, but let's just say it is. The way you're using that freedom isn't even loving. That's what's going on in chapter 8. Freedoms have gone wild. Rights have trumped. Love. And so I think it's an appropriate time for us to take a look at what Paul has to say more broadly about genuine freedom. What, what, is, what does Paul think about genuine freedom? What does Paul think about personal convictions and personal freedoms and issues of the conscience? And, and how do those things relate to conflicting convictions in the church among different people? And stumbling blocks and offending others. Because here in 1 Corinthians 8, we have a clear example of freedoms that need to be surrendered for the sake of another. That's what's going on in chapter 8, right? Here's a clear example of a freedom that's been taken too far. It needs to be surrendered for the sake of another. Does this mean that you have to stop wearing jewelry if someone at church finds it distracting? Is that an application of this? Is this a call to surrender your political opinions? If somebody is going to be taken back or offended by what you believe? Is this a, a, a you know a call to
1: should one person's standard of living play any role in that person's standard of living? And why? Or why not? These kinds of issues are issues of personal conviction
0: maybe how do you know that's what i want to talk about and the best place probably to go is romans 14 so let me ask you if you'll if you'll turn with me go to romans 14 it's just a few pages back romans is the book before first corinthians romans 14 okay the first 12 verses of romans 14 gives us a good glimpse of what paul thinks of in terms of healthy personal freedoms this is how this is this when it's functioning healthy when it, there are legitimate personal freedoms in a church body when it goes too far then you get to first corinthians chapter 8 and when it goes too far you get to the second half of romans 14. So the second half of Romans 14 is dealing with what appears to be the same issues as what we're looking at in 1 Corinthians 8. But the first half of Romans 14 talks about, okay, what do, what do we have to say about legitimate freedoms? That's where I want to spend some time. Healthy freedoms. So let's read the first 12 verses of Romans 14. I'll just make a few comments here. As for the one who is weak in faith. You see there, okay, we're dealing with some similar types of issues. You've got a person who's, who's weak. As, a per, as for one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. That's huge. God welcomes the one who eats. God welcomes the one who abstains. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment
1: on the servant of another? Who's the other? God. And who's the other servant? This person that you're
0: passing judgment on because they're a vegetarian. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to
1: make him stand. If he is a vegetarian,
0: verse five, one person esteems one day is better than another while another esteems all days alike, Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honour of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honour of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God while the one who abstains abstains in the honour of the Lord. And gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord. Both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written... As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. No need to worry about whether or not this person eats meat, this person eats only vegetables. They will give an account to God. They stand before him. You don't need to judge and despise that person. Because they have a different view on this issue.
1: Some genuine freedom issues here. And when freedoms are functioning in a healthy way, there's often a lot of
0: difference of opinion, right? Verse 5. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So we we can say that some people are fully convinced in their minds that they need to eat only vegetables in this situation. Or that this day is a, a, is a special day. Fully convinced. Another person's fully convinced of something else. So we can put to rest the notion that when Paul says we should give no offense, like he does in 1 Corinthians 10 32, give no offense, Paul says. He does not mean try not to hurt one another's feelings. He, he doesn't mean. Um, don't say anything unpleasant, as though the need to sometimes set aside your freedoms requires you to be an unopinionated people pleaser. That's not what Paul means when he says, give no offense. There's a place, absolutely, there's a place for politeness in Christianity. Love is not rude, First Corinthians 13. Uh, we, we of course, deal with issues in kindness and gentleness and humility, but when Paul says, "Give no offense don't be a stumbling block he doesn't mean don't have an opinion so we can just put we can just put that to rest because here you 've got Paul affirming that there's a genuine situation where people have different opinions. This is good. the church that is full of people with strong various conflicting personal convictions is not necessarily in a bad place. Not necessarily. You might have some people who really strongly believe that listening to Christian music is the only thing that they should be doing. Helps them stay focused on the Lord. Doesn't take their mind back to when they were in high school doing all these things they shouldn't have been doing. You've got other people in the church who listen to secular radio, and and seriously, in their conscience, they're giving glory to God because it's so they see the grace of God in these in these musicians uh, in, in His common grace, and and they're able to appreciate it and give glory to God. It happens in the church. Strong convictions on these things. And that's okay. You might have some people who have strong opinions about their little boys not pretending to shoot people with guns. Or their little girls not wearing makeup or earrings. Other people in the church, they've got reasons why they're okay with that.
1: Both of those things. It's okay.
0: At least least it can be okay. That church might be in a very good place, provided they understand some things and they practice some things. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to talk about why an opinionated church must understand some things and they must practice some things. And I'm going to say these are just some principles for navigating issues of conscience. Issues of conscience. If a church is going to do it, if a church has some conscience issues, you've got some various opinions, what are some principles for navigating through some very difficult issues? Uh, and I just want you to know, I'm probably going to make, I'm probably, you're going to come away with more questions than answers. You'll be like, yeah, but what about this? Or, yeah, but what about that situation? And, 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 and it's, these are just some principles I hope that will help guide us. I'm not going to answer every question. In fact, some of the things I'm going to bring up, you're going to talk to me afterwards and be like,
1: medical use of marijuana, what? (laughs) So, a church needs to understand
0: some things. Number one, church needs to understand that personal convictions, different personal convictions can glorify God in different ways. And we have to be okay with that. We have to be okay with the fact that some of us are going to have strong opinions about certain issues and other people are going to have strong opinions about the same issue. And both of them might, in some sense, glorify God in different ways.
1: Harry Potter.
0: You know, there's people right now going this way and there's people right now going that way. Some people are rolling their eyes, other people are like, well, of course not Here, Harry
1: Potter. Gun control. Guantanamo. R-rated movies. What kind of car do you drive? Video games. Different convictions. And different
0: convictions can glorify God in different ways. The... the circumstances in a person's life
1: and, and, and the way that they're processing the
0: things that God is doing might just make something like a video game somehow glorifying to God.
1: Maybe so. Number two, there's a difference
0: between a doctrine and a personal conviction. Very important distinction. A doctrine or a teaching. A doctrine is a teaching of the
1: Scriptures.
0: Doctrine should be taught. It should be endorsed. It should be defended, applied, should be pressed. It should be preached. Doctrine should be embraced. By the church. It's important for people to believe. And submit themselves. To good doctrine. Very important to do this. There's a gravity to the process. Of attempting to persuade. A conviction is an opinion. A strong opinion usually. Right? On some issue that the Bible does not tell us precisely what we must believe about it. It's a perspective that you have in which you are convinced that yours is the best approach for you to take given what you know about the situation. Each one should be fully convinced in his
1: own mind, Paul says. You have reasons for your convictions. Your opinions
0: about which the Bible does not precisely tell you what you should believe about it. Political parties, political
1: candidates,
0: political issues, medical use of marijuana, supporting local businesses versus what,
1: Walmart? People have opinions about this. Eating organic food. Homeschooling, public schooling, private schooling, Christian schooling, dating versus courtship. What qualifies as modest apparel? The teaching is modesty. The application is a conviction issue. Catch the difference? Important distinction.
0: A conviction can be defended. A conviction can be promoted in appropriate contexts and in a spirit of love. It should not be promoted, however, or embraced with the same kind of loyalty that a clear teaching of Scripture should be embraced or endorsed. You know, sometimes we get ourselves into trouble because we start treating convictions like their doctrines. We get all fired up about some issue, and get passionate, start to push it as though it's the responsibility of all Christians everywhere to link arms and avoid caffeine, give side hugs instead of front hugs to the opposite sex. Hey, it's real people have opinions about that but but sometimes you start you start
1: pushing it like it's doctrine burn your secular cd's some people need to do that some people don't get all passionate about some issue like this is what the bible teaches on philosophy of education
0: You're free to have a variety of convictions. We're free to have a variety of convictions in our midst. And even even actually throughout our lives, as we kind of float in and out of different seasons, your convictions might, might change. You are not free
1: to reject sound doctrine before God. You might float in and out of convictions,
0: but, but we're not supposed to reject sound doctrine before God. There's a difference between a doctrine and a personal conviction. Number three, many Bible doctrines are controversial. Yet, we must endorse some and reject others. We have to endorse some, and we have to reject others. People have a variety of beliefs. Obviously, we know this. People have lots of beliefs about what the Bible teaches, but it doesn't mean that we treat controversial doctrines as though everybody has an equally God-glorifying view. We can't afford to do that. We don't treat controversial doctrines like we treat controversial convictions. Does that make sense? The church has to take a stand and it has to endorse certain doctrines that are controversial, that have a variety of views. The church has to take a stand and it has to push some, it has to reject others. Church has to take a stand on whether or not infants should be baptized, for example. Churches got to know what they think about that. Whether or not women should be pastors. Church has That's a controversial doctrine. Church has to take a stand on that. Whether or not we should pray to saints. Whether or not we should practice church discipline. Whether or not God predestines our lives. Whether or not the miraculous gifts are for today. Whether or not the prosperity gospel is, a, is the gospel. Whether or not Harold Camping was right. Whether or not Rob Bell is leading tens of thousands of people astray. Church has to take a stand on those things. We have to teach on those issues. We don't treat them as though it's just a matter of personal preference or personal conviction. Like it's all good. We can all just do the the Christianity doctrine group hug. A church that treats doctrine like conviction will be void of crucial life-giving unity. I could say more
1: about that, but I think I'm going to move on. Number four,
0: many personal convictions are controversial, yet unlike doctrine, various ones must be permitted. Okay, so just like there's lots of doctrines out there, there's lots of convictions out there. And the nature of a conviction is that you feel strongly about it. You're convinced in your own mind that this perspective that you have is wise, it's it's good, it's helpful, it's Christ-like. You might, for example, have a very
1: articulate and compelling argument for why you think what you think about whether or not your tax money should be funding federal and state sponsored welfare programs
0: some strong conviction about that your view you say this is good for society it's loving it's sacrificial it's moral it serves others it's what jesus would do it battles against sin it delights in god and you're convinced and you feel strongly the difference between this And a controversial doctrine is that while we must endorse and reject certain doctrines, we have to be careful that we avoid demanding that others embrace our personal convictions as though they were doctrine. So sometimes the problem is we treat convictions like, I'm sorry, we treat doctrine like convictions. We want to do the group hug thing. And sometimes we treat convictions like they're doctrine. And we start pushing it. And it doesn't mean, of course, that you can't have the opinion. It doesn't mean you can't voice the opinion. It doesn't mean you can't argue for the opinion in the right context. It just means that others can have a different opinion. Others in this church body have other perspectives on the welfare issue. Perspectives that in another sense they find to be loving, sacrificial, moral, beneficial to others. This is what Jesus would do maybe in a different situation. It battles a different kind of sin, etc. Okay? So in the church body there's a variety of controversial opinions on a number of different issues and yet we have to permit various views. Number 5. The line between doctrine and conviction is sometimes blurry. Let me give you an example of this. Birth control, generally speaking, is a matter of personal conviction, I would argue. However, there are some methods of birth control that are
1: sin, like abortion. So
0: that line can com- can become a little blurry. Here's a, this complicates it even more. Some people would say that some very popular forms of birth control like the pill, for example,
1: might cause abortions. But some argue the evidence is inconclusive. What do you do? Hmm,
0: sometimes hard to tell when doctrine stops and conviction starts. Just hard sometimes. Yesterday As many of you probably know, New York became the sixth
1: state to legalize gay marriage. Uh,
0: Clear doctrinal teachings on homosexuality. In God's view, there is no such thing as gay marriage. We should call it so-called gay marriage. What does that mean about these civically recognized
1: situations sometimes the line is blurry. It's hard to know when does it when does doctrine end and conviction begin?
0: And when I say conviction on that issue, all I'm talking about is whether or not it ought to be
1: in law. Or whether it should be resisted.
0: So you can start in these situations, just as you're processing this, you can just start. Is this a doctrine or is
1: this a conviction? Let me think about that a little bit. And know that it's hard to tell sometimes, so you
0: proceed with caution, you proceed with humility pray for humility and understanding. You go back to the Word of God. What does God say about this? Make sure I'm not saying more than what God has said. Make sure that I'm allowing God to say everything He wants to say. You talk to your small group leader. Or one of your
1: pastors assigned. Number six. Our fleshly appetites will try to
0: use freedom as a cloak for sin. In a church with lots of controversial personal freedom, conviction, conscience issues, you have to know
1: that your flesh will try to pull the freedom card sometimes when you're in sin.
0: You've got to know that. You're doing like you're like slamming a six pack in an hour, you know treating women like meat, your mouth is filthy,
1: freedom, like please, that's not freedom, that's revelry you but your flesh is going to want to do that, right? All right you know, you are going
0: to the temple. Of an idol. And eating food there that's sacrificed to an idol. Are you kidding me? That's not okay. you got to know that is not okay.
1: But you're pulling the freedom card.
0: And, and you're trying to justify stuff. All these other people are looking in and going like, that's not okay. Your wife doesn't think it's okay. But man, we're just amazed. We're amazing at trying to justify sin, and we and Christians love to use this. You know, we've we've got freedom in Christ, right, to justify things you ought not to be justifying. So, so you you, you just got to be careful. We've probably all done this. I certainly have. You got to be careful. You need to know that your flesh will try to do that so important when we're talking about freedoms to make sure we guard it with this kind of thing.
1: Okay, so
0: an opinionated church with lots of convictions needs to understand some things. They need to understand that different personal convictions can glorify God in different ways. They need to understand that there's a difference between a doctrine and a personal conviction. They need to understand that many Bible doctrines are controversial, yet certain ones must be embraced and other ones must be rejected. A church needs to understand that many personal convictions are controversial, yet various kinds must be permitted. And a church needs to understand that the line between doctrine and conviction is sometimes blurry and that your flesh is going to try to use Freedom as a cloak for sin. If you have these things, I think it will help as you process conscience issues. Now, not only do we as a church need to understand some things, but we need to practice some things, probably in light of these principles. We need to practice some things, and the first thing that I want to suggest we need to practice is we must resist judging and despising those who have different and legitimate personal convictions that doesn't mean that um if they have illegitimate personal convictions you have permission to despise them
1: uh
0: but if it's if it's illegitimate there might be a, a good a good reason to enter into that situation maybe with a little little more um concern at least okay but but legitimate different personal convictions You've got to resist judging and despising. Paul says in chapter 14 of Romans, starting in verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother or why do you despise your brother? he doesn't eat meat. Because he does eat meat. He's this, got this embittered, angry, bickering church. That, and they're, they're all torn up because uh, of some, some non-essential conviction issue. That they really care about.
1: I've just seen it with stupid stuff.
0: I've seen it with whether or not kids should watch TV. I've certainly seen it with the homeschooling issue. I've seen it with eating certain types of food.
1: It's more healthy than other kinds of food.
0: it's really easy to do because you feel so strongly about your convictions convince so you've got to walk this careful line of having an opinion that you can share in the right setting that you can even try to promote in the right setting, but you have to be wearing beware of trying to enforce it you have to be aware of using your conscience as the standard for another's actions. you have to be aware of despising those people.
1: Because you just think they're so stupid for what they believe about the Republicans. Whatever.
0: You fill in the blank. Beware of thinking that they are your servant and that they have to give an account to you for their personal convictions. An opinionated church has to practice some flexibility
1: here. And
0: when that happens, something glorious takes place. When when a church can be flexible on these kinds of things, something glorious happens. Where else on earth do you find the gathering of Democrats and Republicans and homeschoolers and public school teachers and? vegetarians and carnivores and Asians and Caucasians and rich and poor and slave and master and hymn lovers and rockers and doctors and patients and singles and married and male and female who take all of those identities and all of those opinions and all of those cultures and they unite around a common love that renders all of those things secondary as they become a family Devoted to one another in self sacrificial love. Where else do you see that on the planet? It's awesome and it's weird
1: and so glorious because that's not why we're here. We're not here to promote our views on video games. We're here to worship Jesus. If you got a different opinion on that, cool. On the video game thing. And it
0: requires some flexibility when it comes to personal convictions. The second thing that we have to practice is that we should not use our freedoms, we should not use our freedoms, that should say, to entice or pressure others to do something that would be sin for them and now we're back to 1 Corinthians 8. So 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 this is really cool because here, this, all the stuff we've been talking about is all the stuff that comes before 1 Corinthians 8. And you can kind of get a feel for why the Corinthians were like, "Oh, this is cool. We can have different opinions. We can, you know, we can be in different places on things and 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 then it, it, they, they just went wild with it. And so 1 Corinthians 8 comes in or the second half of Romans 14 comes in. And it says, wait wait, wait a second, be, beware of enticing or pressuring somebody else to do something that's going to be sin for them. Romans chapter 14, I'm just going to start reading in verse 20. This is the last part of, of uh, the chapter 14. We haven't read this yet. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have,
1: keep between yourself and God.
0: Don't put that pressure on somebody else to do something that they shouldn't do. Think about others and try not to compel people to violate their conscience. This is just so important. The conscience is like a nerve. It's like the moral nerve that God gave to you. And it's exposed to the air. And, and, and it starts to get near sin. And it, it starts sending whatever nerves send. Some sort of message. says This isn't good. This isn't good. The conscience is really important. Sometimes the conscience needs to be informed by the Bible. Sometimes you feel like some things are wrong and they're, and they're not really wrong. so sometimes it needs to be informed. but as you're informing people and helping them to understand what is what's good in the Christian life and, 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 and what's permissible, as you're doing that, beware of pushing people past where they can go. You don't want to damage the conscience it, It's this nerve that if it if it keeps getting violated. It starts to grow a callus on it. And then you stop feeling bad about things you shouldn't be doing. You Just grow numb. You don't want to push people past where they can go. So if a person comes over to your place and and they're not comfortable watching R-rated movies, well, don't watch an R-rated movie. Seriously, don't make them do something that they're not comfortable with. Why would you do that?
1: Somebody feels bad about eating animals, like when I eat an animal, that feels wrong to me.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Don't try to don't put weird pressure on them to make them eat an animal if they feel like that's weird and wrong. Cool. No need to do that. And hopefully, through some
1: discussions, maybe they'll be okay with the fact that it's okay that you do. Okay,
0: so what does that produce in a church? You've got a church who's, who understands these things, you have a church that's practicing these things, what does it produce?
1: Well, I've got four things.
0: One, it produces a church that is loyal to the scriptures and firm where she needs to be firm. She stands where she needs to stand. She's not blown around by every wind of doctrine that comes whistling through the ears of the blogosphere. She reads hard, this church. She thinks hard. She's serious about Jesus. She's serious about the Word of God. She's serious about living in this world in a way that is consistent with the unshifting ways of Christ. That's one thing that it produces. Another thing that these things produce is a church that's flexible. She's firm where she needs to be firm. She's flexible when it comes to the application of the Scriptures to individual people's lives, recognizing that we live in a complex world that requires all of us to make challenging decisions. Decisions that require wisdom, counsel, prayer,
1: thought, observing the culture,
0: listening to the word of God, talking to your leaders, talking as a couple. you've got to, you know, process all this stuff, weigh all kinds of factors for all kinds of decisions. The Bible says. Here's some teaching. The Bible says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth.
1: But it doesn't tell you how big your house should be. The
0: Bible says, women should adorn themselves with modesty. 1 Timothy 2, nine, But it does not tell
1: you how long your skirt should be.
0: The Bible says, "Do not get drunk." Ephesians 5:18. It's serious. Don't do it. Destroys your heart spiritually. Destroys your relationships. God knows it's not good for you. Don't do it. But the scripture doesn't say
1: how many beers you can have. Some people saying None for me. Some people say.
0: Some for me. All these factors you've got to weigh in. And different people are going to have different opinions. Because life is complicated. And everyone must use wisdom to discern. How they should live. And apply the word of God to their lives. So not only do you have a church that's firm where she needs to be firm. She's flexible where she needs to be flexible. Thirdly. It produces a church that's willing to learn and a church that's willing to be corrected. We can't presume that we've always done everything right. We can't presume that we have all treated doctrine like doctrine and conviction like conviction. Sometimes we got our wires crossed on those things. I remember a certain period of time. I've shared this with some of you.
1: I was... um,
0: I couldn't tell if I was when I was drinking coffee, if I was feeling a coffee buzz or if it was the holy spirit.
1: Like I couldn't tell. And so
0: I I was like I'm gonna, I'm going to stop drinking coffee. And in fact, I think Christians probably shouldn't because what if we're confusing the holy spirit with coffee buzz? kind of got, like, worked up about this, right? Wires crossed. (laughs) Conviction, not doctrine.
1: So I didn't drink coffee for a while. I guess I'm better. Okay, so... um
0: We all have to make some adjustments. We, we, we get our wires crossed. We do things we shouldn't do. We say things we shouldn't say. We push things we shouldn't push as hard. We don't push some things we should have pushed. And God, in his mercy, often uses the church body to correct us. Other people in the church, the word of God. And helps us think through our doctrine, helps us think through our convictions, our applications of the scripture. And the reality is that as long as we're here in this age, there's this constant tension of holding fast to the non-negotiables on the one hand. And on the other hand, trying to navigate the shifting circumstances of a world and of a life that's just going through different seasons, you process things differently on the East Coast than you process them in Colorado in some ways you got you you're living in this tension of 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 the firm things that you must hold to and and the other things that you're trying to apply in the right way you, you need to be willing to be corrected sometimes. Add to that problem the tendency to, as long as you're here, battle against that deceitful flesh, which is always trying to find some way to justify sin. If you hold fast to these principles, I think it will help you be a teachable person. Humble, able to be corrected as you, as you try to navigate these, this, this, these things where you've got to stay firm and some things you've got to be flexible on. Doctrine and conviction. And the fourth thing that these things would produce, I would hope at least, is a church that is ruled by love, not rights. At the end of the day, we're ruled by love, not by rights. A church that's willing to lay down freedom for the sake of others if it's going to cause you to sin, if I'm somehow enticing you or pressuring you to do something that is going to be destructive for you, I don't want to do that, which means that it's A church that's shining the glory of her Savior. Because listen to how Jesus thought of his
1: rights. Though he was in the form of
0: God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to, clings to but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So a church that is willing to lay down some rights so that somebody else might live, even though it costs me something, that's a glorious thing. It's a glorious thing to, for a church to be
1: shining like that.
0: You probably have a ton of questions, and that's okay. There's no easy way to navigate these. Things. That's the nature of it. The, the nature of it is this, there's no easy way to navigate it. But God will give you wisdom to live the life that He is calling you to live. He absolutely will. So let's
1: pray and ask Him. Father, it is our.
0: Delight to be your children. And it is our desire to be pleasing to you in the way that we live our lives. It's our desire to live in a way that is fitting for someone who is ruled by Christ and simultaneously living in a shifting world. There's many opinions in here as there are personalities on any number of issues. I pray that we would not judge and despise one another for that. I pray that you would help us to know how to appropriately challenge one another. If it looks like we're hiding behind the freedom card when we're really trying to just justify sin. Help us to stand firm on controversial but sound doctrine. Help us to be flexible. Help us to be loving and generous. And land us safe on Canaan's side. Take us through this wilderness and bring us across the Jordan and land us safe on Canaan's side, Lord.